John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 283.ZP0206, certificate number 45989, Cottage Core. <laughs> We're in the depth of a, a pandemic um, that's got us all confined and quarantined to our homes maybe even when this show airs after the election there will be a different feeling about where we are and i think even now you and i being members of the ivory tower liberal elite of the northwest we probably think of the quarantine differently than people who are attending the republican national convention we, uh, I, i've noticed in particular i have some I have a little, a lot of privilege in my pandemic surroundings. Mm-hmm. I'm not alone, right? Which is nice. But nor are you, you cooped up with a bunch of people you don't like, right? I have, I have three family members, all of whom I love, living with me, but not in the same room. Exactly. Plenty, <laughs> plenty of, uh, plenty of places for everybody to get away from each other. And you know, we have windows. Right. A couple. Did I tell you this a couple months ago? We had our house painted and all the windows were covered for two days. And I was like, oh, this is why people trapped in apartments are losing their mind. Yeah, you need windows. Uh, it, it can be a little claustrophobic. Um, but we're taking the the pandemic seriously still. We're still quarantined, both of our families. Although because you and I meet in this bunker to record our show, we're, we're quarantined together. So we have That's that. That's true. We're a little pod. We have that option. And uh, just the other day, uh, this past weekend, we invited you out to have a campfire dinner with us. Yes, you guys have access to a little community beach here that we had to we had to show ID to get in. We had to <laughs> pretend to be your friends or something. Yeah, you had to pretend to be our friends, and we lit a fire in a little in a little campfire circle, and we roasted wieners. My kids were very opposed to the terminology yeah your uh dylan and caitlin both hate the word wiener they were they were unified in not wanting to attend a weenie roast but they wanted they what what do they call them they don't say franks they don't say weenies or wieners they say hot dogs is that it they say hot dogs but it's a weenie roast it's like right in the name weenie roast i don't think anyone of their generation ever said weenie roast and i don't remember people like weenie roast to me sounds very much like a Cub Scout in the 50s? Yes. 
Yeah, and we said weenie roast. I don't know why. Did you call them weenies? Were you like, hey, I'll, you want me to heat you up a couple of weenies? <laughs> I believe so. Do you want so. me to heat up your wiener for I you? I do believe we did, although, uh, you know, we also said hot dogs. I think wiener almost exclusively wiener. meant penis when I was in elementary school. I think so. I think it did. But I think, uh, you Is know, that part had, of the fun? I had older people around me. My, my, uh, my, Parents and relatives were all a little bit older, so I think they might have called them wieners. I'm trying to remember if, like, even my grandparents ever offered me, like, beans and weenies. Yeah. Maybe. Franks and beans is what they called them. Yeah, Franks. And we don't say Franks either. What happened to no. Franks? Well, I don't call them Franks because I'm, uh, you know, because the, the Hun is, uh, is coming over the, <laughs> coming over the parapet. Is that when we got rid of Wiener in Frankfurt? Did <laughs> we develop hot dog as a way of making, way of making this garbage food seem more patriotic during World War One? But we ate a bunch of garbage food together around the campfire. It was lovely. And yet there the was The sun a sank into Puget Sound. Kind of wholesomeness to it, right? We didn't, we, we, it's not like we were spraying each other with Mountain Dew. We tried to. We, um, but we were using conventional ingredients. We were making s'mores out of Hershey's chocolate. We were, um, you know, we ate some watermelon. Some but- Fritos and watermelon. And, uh, it really could have been almost the same menu in 1940. But, it, and, and neither of us, at least in that instance, felt, um, beholden or, or, uh, encumbered by the, um, whole food or natural food, raw food movements that we, back in the old days when we went to fancy restaurants, you know, we, we could be forgiven for, um, checking the menu to see if there were, if it was all natural beef. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're middle-class people. We sort of indoctrinated in that culture of, of natural foods, expensive and, and artisanal or artisanal foods. But there was something about just being around a campfire that made you just not care so much, right? Yeah, that's right. You didn't want fancy sausages that tasted like apple and jalapeno. Not if you're if you're roasting them on a little sharpened stick. I mean, and you're going to end up smelling and tasting like campfire anyway. I um <laughs> I found the next day that the car still smelled like campfire just from yeah. having me in it. That's how it goes, right? And and uh we didn't make s'mores with salted chocolate, you know, 70% cacao. Can you imagine a time when desserts did not have salt sprinkled on them? So weird. Yeah. I, no, I'm fine with that. I don't want any, I don't want salt on my desserts. It's something that, uh, yeah, I, I guess I think of that as restaurant culture, but it hasn't really bled over into my daily life that much. I yeah. Mean, I guess ingredient wise, like I never ate fennel as a kid, and now I'll have fennel in a salad even at home. And I don't think, oh la di da, a fennel. <laughs> so I guess it has changed me a little bit, food culture. But part of it is, um, yeah, part of it is just that that was the fashion in the restaurants in Seattle. That was the style, and you wanted to. I mean, you had to eat out, and people would invite you to go places. And and the idea that it was a special event. That you were yeah. that the waiter would come explain your food to you, um, and the and the explanation wasn't just this is a hen cooked in butter, but um, that this was a hen named Elizabeth and cooked in butter that she lived next to. There's a Seattle restaurant that will remain a name, but that I never went back to just because. I mean, two criminal offenses. First, it had nothing but a communal table. Yeah, that's hard. I don't want to eat. That's next the to way. A that's the way of that style. Yeah. Uh, and, and they I, said the butter was named Elizabeth. And I know it means I'm a bad person for not wanting to 
pass to, a to sim- bowl to, of yeah, rutabagas around with strangers to random people. Yeah, because I know it takes a village. But and the second thing is they would serve the food, but if you tried to and then immediately eat, you would look like the the godless kid digging in before um, the nun says the prayer in the movie or something. Yeah, uh, because you had to wait for the chef to come out and just tell you all about the source for the fiddlehead ferns where you were about to eat and what farm the persimmons came from. Right. And I, I didn't care it's about any of that. It's very performative. And it seemed like a bit of a personality cult. Like I was really supposed to enjoy the fact that this guy was deigning to come down and tell me about his persimmons. And these I didn't care. The, Go back to the kitchen. These are the people that refer to chefs as chef. In this case, it was chef first name. Oh, and, Chef and Bob, I, I can see that. I don't want to say the name because maybe this will let people identify the restaurant. <laughs> but my wife and I were just rolling our eyes every time Chef First Name came out yeah. to, uh, okay, everyone, don't eat yet. Chef First Name is about to come out and uh, and walk us through the where these uh, you know where these dates came from. Tell you about the salt that's named Elizabeth. Mm. Why does why is it always Elizabeth for you? Well, it's a it's an old fashioned name, and and I think if you're going to name a chicken or a, or a piece of butter. You're going to start, you're not going to name it like Brianna. You're probably going to name it Elizabeth or Marjorie. One thing I learned at the campfire, I think, is that what your sister is pretty much vegetarian, but she will eat a chicken if she knows its name or something. Yeah, she's a fake vegetarian, but she doesn't, she only eats things. I mean, this is kind of the, this is in a way part of the style that I'm describing, which is that somehow eating a chicken that was raised with a wearing a bow uh, in its chicken hair is somehow more okay to eat a chicken that has had dreams um, revealed, a chicken that has... A chicken that lived a a full life. Yeah, a chicken that that stood on top of a hill and looked out at the horizon and thought, one day I will, you know, I'll set to sail and then was killed, you know, with, because you don't want a chicken that's five years old. That chicken would be terrible. Are you saying that's worse if that chicken had hopes and dreams and then it met the axe? No, I think a chicken raised in a slave cage is going to have a worse time. I do think that. Right. He, that he, I mean, that's that's the thing is. A chicken wearing a bow is, is better at least, off. At least by omission, it's not in some awful poultry factory. And we've talked uh, before, and I think we're all conscious of the fact that industrial production of animals in particular, but also all the antibiotics and other chemicals that go into keeping those industrially caged animals from dying of infections, um, makes the food maybe questionable. We were talking both as fathers of daughters, just being conscious of the fact that there's so many hormones in food, and that actually affects the growth and development of our children, it or does. at least is connected to uh, accelerated puberty. I think one that. of the things that has dropped the puberty age in America by a matter of years, I think, since we were kids, has been hormones in milk. Hormones in milk and also hormones in the chemicals that make up plastic bottles or, mm-hmm. or chemicals that imitate hormones in the body. Um, but there's something more to this whole question and it's something that's um that in a way is kind of age old uh it's been reoccurring now for centuries the idea that that we are divorced from nature that we are divorced from our essential selves there have been several omnibus entries second sleep for instance uh an idea that our natural way of living in a in a pre-industrial society would involve waking up in the middle of the night and gossiping and, and, um, 
making another meal, maybe, reading the Bible, whatever it is, dancing by moonlight, casting spells, eating cats, whatever people did before second sleep. Um, but, you know, and it dates back to a kind of, um, I think what you would say was uh, enlightenment ideas that, that um, the newly encountered Native Americans were more natural and more elevated by, by, um, by virtue of the fact that they weren't encumbered by all of modernity and all of this, you know, war-making equipment and natural, or I'm sorry, and sort of unnatural philosophy even. Is that the first time we'd ever, most Europeans had thought about the contrast, I guess? I think so, because encounters with pre-industrial people prior to that were just opportunities to enslave. Um, and it was, and including early contact with Native Americans, it was only after the Enlightenment, during a period where, you know, an examination of of consciousness and will um, and all of a sudden there not all of a sudden, but you could look across the sea and, and find examples of people unpolluted who were living closer to the land, closer to a kind of relationship, not, not to animal husbandry as much as to, as to animals in their nature, natural state. Um, and, and the funny thing is a lot of this is happening before the industrial revolution really redraws cities. I mean, these aren't people in smoky choked cramped cities who are dreaming of the noble savages in their forests it's no, just it's just people on farms who are like well it's got to be a better way people in salons mostly yeah. and and what they were lamenting was the political culture the you know the the all the alliances and wars within europe all of the um and in some ways they're all recent i mean the plagues are all in recent memory um, but it's also a reevaluation of religion and, and, and a post-Protestant mm-hmm. idea that a natural connection, a personal connection to God is kind of a de-industrialization of religion. Yeah, it's not, it's not related to the state religion. It should right. be unmediated by the king and his church. And as you get further away into deism— you see that, oh, it's possible, rather than trying to import religion to, um, to the Native Americans or to, to uncontacted people, maybe what we should be doing is understanding their connection to God. And, and all of that is, you know, it's feeding a kind of philosophical movement. But it wasn't in t- until the kind of really early days of the Industrial Revolution that there was an organized response to industrialization that that built upon these enlightenment ideas and started to really advance the notion that industrialization and modern civilization was divorcing us from truth and enslaving us in an artless and inauthentic existence most of those people kind of pontificating in their London coffee houses or whatever maybe would not have, you know, maybe you need to not have firsthand appreciation of the actual countryside because then you would think of it as kind of a, a dirty, sweaty, <laughs> difficult life, right? Like you you have to have only seen it in paintings or, or read about it in uh, pastoral poetry 
what we think of as the as the natural English countryside or French countryside are really manufactured products of hundreds of years of of cultivation of the land, often for vistas, you know, mm-hmm. on those giant estates. Um, Marie Antoinette famously had a oh yeah a small village constructed at Versailles that she, she wanted something quaint, right? Yeah, that she actually populated with artisans and and yeah people masquerading as peasants i bet that would be a good gig right oh, yeah. like if your choice is to be a real peasant or to go <laughs> eat palace food and dress as a peasant it's kind of like being in you know being in main street on disneyland pretending to work in a turn of the century magic shop yeah that's exactly it uh, marie antoinette would take her favorite people out to her little potemkin village and spend all day pretending to be peasants and the little peasants that she had employed to do peasant things, I mean, they all had a merry time. It's funny to think about how much Mary Antoinette would just love Disneyland. Well, yeah. Well, think or, about or, Versailles. Or, or Colonial Williamsburg. It, it is freaking Disneyland. But that was that became a fashion among the aristocracy to have little follies on their on their property that that mimicked an old ruin or or a little thatched roof. You're talking about romanticism. Um, Well, it's, it's prior to romanticism. Romanticism kind of was, was the, the next extension of this, the maybe more widely popular version of it, more widely accessible. Not everyone can, can build a tiny village and inhabit it with peasants. I certainly can, (laughs) but I've done very well for myself. Me either. Is that that your dream though? Would you like to? Oh, is that why you're clearing all that brush in your backyard? You know, I just dress up my cats (laughs) and, uh, and make them, you know, act out little plays for me. My children are now too old for me to try to get them to dress, put put them in a little village. My daughter just read little house on the prairie and immediately took an interest in, um, in little, uh, chintz dresses, little, it seemed like she was wearing something kind of gigamy when she, uh, open the door today. Yeah, she's very into dressing like um, like someone on the prairie and acting out little wagon train scenes and stuff. And it's all in contrast to her otherwise 100% Star Wars-based <laughs> play space. I said, who is this American Girl doll? Yeah. And she said, I'm not an American Girl doll, which, fair enough. Yeah. She's not. She kicked you in the shin then, right? Yeah. And, and then hit you with her lightsaber. But, uh, but she does spend some time out on the picnic table now. Um, every once in a while, I see her like crack a little switch and go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's talking to some, some potted plants. American pioneer fiction is such a, seems like such a, you know, it's, it's crazy how little American girls of any era seem to take to it. And I'm not sure what, is it just because they're, is it just because of the, the success of that foundational text, those Laura Ingalls Wilder books, or is there something inherent about the, the planes that that they that speaks to them. Well, I think that, and I, we may make a connection at the end of this episode to that. I, um, the appeal of this this pastoralism um, is always an appeal to simplicity and an appeal uh, and an appeal to authenticity. Um, Maybe simplicity more for little kids. To, you know, those kids never, I remember as a kid reading those and being like, they don't go to school. Right. Right. They, or or I, I don't have to do my math workbooks if I'm, if I'm living in the Minnesota woods. And she and I just read a couple of stories where, oh, we read uh, where the red fern grows, where, you know, going to town is something that you, you, you put your little bare feet to, 
to the trail and walk all day, sleep outside, and then you get to town the next day. Those books are very sensual. Uh, yeah, they are. Pages and pages of description of food that you're salting away for winter. Um, uh, you know, the, the games the kids play. Uh, you know, just maybe because they're more about the patterns and textures of everyday life than most things you read at that age. I was really, that was very formative for me. Well, and also your anxieties are not so disassociated, right? Your anxieties are wild animals, mm-hmm. and most of those kids are portrayed as pretty resilient, pretty unafraid. Um, and they, get, they get scarlet fever, and they're fine. Yeah, they you know they spend the night outside, and and they they never panic uh, when they get lost. You know, they don't freak out; they find their way home. They have they have very comforting parents in those books. Yeah, that's right. So you're, you're, you feel very protected. There's there's a cozy aesthetic to those books, even though they're on the edge of a dangerous frontier and there's uh, bears and Indians and panthers. Mom and dad are both very hardy. There's almost no problem that one or the other of them can't fix. Mm-hmm. Mom can feed the family based on nothing. Uh, dad can fix any wagon. And sure, there there aren't complications. There's never a question of whether mom is going to come home from work late. You know, there's not, you don't have to worry about what's on the radio. It seems like you're saying that they're comforting because they're, the fears in them are bigger. The fears are bigger, but they're knowable, right? There's mm. not a, there's not a, um, an existential fear. And Do you really think that's true? I always assume people back then had all the, all the existential fears and anxieties Plus, a panther might eat you. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I think that might be a, a, a modern overlay. Yeah. And, and, and part of it is if you're working all day, you don't if, have time for. Yeah, if you wake up and just basic survival requires that you work until the sun goes down. Um, I can see that. What time do you have to sit around and wonder about what the meaning of it is, or what you know, what Nellie Olson thinks about you? Right. Uh, yeah, it's true. Maybe those are modern luxuries. And I, you know what, we we can draw a lot of. Um, a lot of this finds its its uh, lodestone, its its birthplace in Walden. Mm. Um, Thoreau leaves behind the hustle bustle of what was probably a Boston with a population of seventy five thousand people, uh, and departs to Walden, which which actually wasn't that far away from anything. Yeah, I think he's actually going from Concord, which is probably oh. a pretty like you know. Probably a, a small, quaint town today, the, the kind of thing you, we would yearn to. I mean, you've been to Concord, right? I mean, there's it, nothing there. There's no point at which Concord was a metropolis. No. Um, and Walden isn't that far, right? Wal- yeah. you, you, when you read it's the true. book, you think, wow, he's out in Walden. Basically, he's, he's <laughs> glamping on some friend's uh, big backyard. But his premise was he's going to return to nature. And, um, and in doing so... Be free, be free of the encumbrances. And that book was extremely popular and remains popular and was, was, and jump started the whole, um, that shows that as early as 1840, whatever, whenever that book came out, people were kind of feeling like there were anxieties and modernity that, uh, that in simpler country times you didn't have to deal with. And the industrial revolution was you know in full swing at that point yeah um but but still a fairly new phenomenon um it, i think it you could say that it started in the late uh late 1700s american revolution era when things started to be manufactured by machines um and by the 
1840 was in full swing. We were now, um, you know, craftsmen who were part of the process of making things from the design stage to the finished product by which, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. if you were an ax maker, you drew the ax. start with a tree and I make a, I end right. with an ax. And yeah. you end with an ax. All those processes had, uh, had been divided and division of labor was one of the main constituent, you know, constituent parts of into the industrial It's revolution. more efficient to stand in one place and do put one bolt and an ax handle. That's right. You sit and do this and I'll sit and do that. And together we'll make an ax. And that, uh, that divorce from craftsmanship and from um, a connection to to making things was even in its time seen as uh, in its time seen by thinkers and by by theorists as um, as a kind of death of nature and a death of our natures and a, a um, a, a quarantine from from something intrinsic to health and to mental health. It's an easy sell. Like, I don't think I'm alone in the fact that, like, just walking through a totally unremarkable forest, I feel, you know, pleased and rejuvenated in, right. in a way that I do not feel on a city street. And the the to imagine that even as the Industrial Revolution was just ramping up, we were only... F- at the very dawn of experiencing machine-made products and and assembly line-made products, 98% of the things that scramble our brains today did not exist. There was already a, a, a widespread movement to condemn this um, the mass production. Maybe back then it was just typical kind of old person carping. Maybe it was just, you know, in, in living memory, there were old people still being like, in my day. Well, no, it was very popular with young artists hmm. um, because of the because of the feeling of alienation and the feeling that, wait a minute, these are, um, like so often happens with technology, you see the world changing as a result of the technology without there being any underpinning theory. No one has worked out, is this good for us? We're seeing it it, now with social media, and we're acting as though it's never happened before. But social media came in, and we all went, oh, interesting. And before we had time to think about it, it ruined our lives. And now we're trying to reevaluate it and think about, like, are there theories behind this? Even Mark Zuckerberg and his dorm room friends weren't, like, um, you know— sitting around on their beanbag chairs being like, how do we change the world for the better? Which is how you like to think about new innovations. They were just horny for the girls in their dorm. Yeah. And then when they realized it was a thing that was popular, they thought, how do we make money from this? Right. And that's true of a lot of these innovations. And I talk about it in relation to the mechanization of war quite a bit, or the robotization of war. It began with drones and now is increasingly, I mean, everything's becoming drone um, drone war. I was watching a uh, failsafe. You guys on failsafe on front of the fair yet? Yeah. The original one, the Henry Fonda one. Yeah. And you know, the, the, it hasn't the, appeared yet, but yeah, it's on the list in, in that movie, which is kind of about the nuclear fears. You know, it's all about how the machines are going to be to blame because they're now acting too fast for, right. for sensible humans to impose any kind of morality or, or even, um, or even common sense on the decisions. And, uh, the pilots are all grumbling about how someday they're going to have, Planes that pilots don't even fly. 
And it seemed crazy talk. It, it seemed crazy talk in 1964 when that movie came out. And it kind of seemed crazy talk in 2004. Right. But in the last 15 years, those pilots from the 60s are absolutely right. Like, that was the, the goal, to, to, uh, to advance things so far that you do not need human oversight at all. Well, and the argument in favor of it is sort of undeniable because we don't put our pilots at risk anymore. That's... Our soldiers... We're going to have much higher survivability, and it's the same in industrialization. I mean, really, it's it's the the capitalists wanting to uh, you know uh, streamline to pad the bottom line. But right. the idea is, uh, you know, fewer unpleasant tasks. We've got machines now to to hammer that metal in, and you don't have to do it with a hammer anymore. Isn't that nice? And in a way, you're you're talking to an audience of people that work from dawn to dusk and scrape a living off the land. And the initial appeal of like, come to work in a factory, we'll pay you actual money and you can have, well, not weekends off, not for a while, not until the labor movement, but at least at the end of the day, you go home. And And the more mechanized the job, the less sweaty your labor. Right. And you buy things with money instead of make things with your Trading things for eggs. I mean, and, and you can move to the city and you will have access to the city. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that people would... People did not march into industrialization at the end of a bayonet point so much as it seemed like the advantages were apparent. And it's only later that you feel that estrangement. Um, We've noticed with drone warfare that the difference is now we can kill people kind of with impunity and that the decision-making process for that now is also starting to be automated. And (laughs) if you don't have people who are actually at risk – what keeps you from being in a state of total war all the time? We could just be at war with everybody and people here at home feel no, you know, fewer and fewer of our soldiers die. And so what are the stakes for us? It's the twilight zone where if you press a button somewhere uh, on the other side of the world dies. Right. So and why so, not? So why not? I'm never going to see them. <laughs> with industrialization, um, it was in the mid 1860s, the mi- middle part of that century that, um, that there started to be kind of an organized movement. A man by the name of John Ruskin um, saw industrialization as being a, a, a problem of moral and social health. He recognized that, and, and this is at a time when people still had eight kids and all lived in a giant house together, but he saw communities starting to become um, dissolute. People were losing connection to one another uh, People were moving to unhealthy cities, leaving the land behind. And he had, um, you know, all of these anti-industrial philosophies also have a, a very strong aesthetic compo- component. It's funny that John Ruskin uh, yearned for a natural landscape. Do you know the, the famous story about his marriage? No. This may or may not be true, but <laughs> in one popular retelling, he uh, never recovered from the shock on his wedding night when he learned about pubic hair on women. He didn't know it was there. He had paintings had never had not informed him. Interesting. And, and that, from it, then on, he could not perform. Yeah, and that, that essentially ended his his uh, his marriage. So it's it's ironic that he yearned for a natural landscape. In other, also that story may not be true, but it's, yeah. but it's a common. Uh, you know, he probably legend. was influenced by the pre-Raphaelite paintings, which also kind of depicted this this um, idealized, yeah, yeah, sort of land of nymphs and fauns. That all had curly black hair and and uh, and sizable noses. They're cavorting. 
Uh, there, there's a lot of lily pads in those paintings. <laughs> is that really? Are lily pads, <laughs> are lily oh, pads yeah. sexualized in oh, some way? Oh, yeah. You're gonna, I'm not into lily pad core, but... You're going to see that lily pad action. But the, the complaints about what, what industrialization produced was um, that the, the products were kind of ignorant of their constituent parts. They, you would, if you were making a thing out of wood and uh, this tree and that tree, they became equal and undistinguishable. Although throughout history, the wood from this tree and the wood from that tree were very different. And a craftsman would approach making things out of that wood very differently. And in an industrialized process, when you run out of alder, I guess you switch to birch. And someone that works with wood would would say that's not you can't do the same thing. You know, it change, it's too different. So that ignorance you're actually losing artistic skill and losing a a, a connection to the the material, mm. uh, uh, the material, the natural material of the world. Um, and what so then what you produce is vulgar. It's uh, it's base. It's um, Less useful. And I totally believe this. Sure. You, you, you just go to the toy aisle of a, of a dollar store and it's, you know. It's, it's it, awful. It's not beautiful. And so the reaction, the industrial reaction to that is to make those things more appealing to consumers by making them excessive and ornate, falsely ornate. Mm. You add gigaws, you... You add paint, you brick, add a layer yeah, of colors. Yeah. And, and that ornateness isn't native. It's not an ornate, it's not a functional ornateness. Um, and so that artificiality then means that, that things become impractical. Um, and you're, you're preferencing novelty, which is kind of dishonest and soulless and the work is repetitive and the products are repetitive. And probably less, uh. I mean, there's less product quality in the product, so they're uh, right. And, and they don't last as long. It's they true. Don't, they it. don't do their thing as well. Anything made by machines, you find that as the as the machines, you know, as the tooling wears down, things that are made later. I mean, there's a sweet spot where the tooling is worn enough that things have smooth edges and they and they they function, you know, uh, without without hiccup. But then as things start to, as tooling starts to wear, there's, within industrial process, there's a kind of an acknowledgement, like these tools are worn, but they still work and we're going to keep milking them in until they break before we replace them. And, you know, products made with those worn out tools are. But you can sell them for the same price. You can sell them for the same price. And to, and to a consumer, they sit on the shelf the same way. Mm-hmm. The preference then. Uh, as advanced by John Ruskin and then ultimately by what became known as the arts and crafts movement was for things that were made by human beings that were in, in involved in the whole the whole sort of design through creation handicraft no division of labor um Raw and unprocessed materials. Is this the beginning of the? Do you get into the English arts and crafts movement here? You, uh, you do, and 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 William Morris then took these and and again connected a real aesthetic to it, but it was an aesthetic that that made claim to a moral, a, a social and moral improvement. This wallpaper produces 
good-hearted children. It does, right? That the that that not just making things, but being surrounded by made things um, is is good for the soul. Um, this is the the premise. Of the arts and crafts movement went across a lot of genre of architecture and of, um, but also uh, the not just decorative arts, but practical arts. If you think about the Olmsteads and the many, many parks they designed around the United States, all part of this kind of um, return to a natural aesthetic, return to a time when things were were made with intention. It goes into education, too. Waldorf schools really, really value and center, you know, students touching natural right. fibers and textiles and wood. And, and we used to make fun of that when our friends would send their kids to Waldorf schools. Oh, Hope they get to touch a lot of natural natural woods today. <laughs> that polyester, that's that's soul sucking. Well, and you wonder how much I mean, there there's a huge difference between living in the woods and living in a city and touching wood as part of your um yeah. part of your schooling. I mean, you know, you can touch wood all day, but is it does it really connect you to nature? Um and this is this is the the kind of question of arts and crafts. Does it become not just decorative, but does it become um, exclusive? Where you become for an elite class, yeah, who knows the difference and can afford the difference. You like these things, and you're smart, and also your kids get to go to Waldorf schools. And it's not a movement to make all schools Waldorf. It's not a movement to right. let all kids touch wood. It's your kids that are touching wood. And I guess in the early days of this, I mean, today it's it's a commonplace middle-class thing that you can get out of the city. And, you know, instead of, if you yearn for the natural world, you you, you go camping for the weekend. Yeah. And, uh, and that's something that's become possible in the American century with the automobile. You know, that, that would have been a lot, that's a bigger project for a non-elite person in 19th century Europe or America, it involves train tickets. Well, that's the thing. It was an argument for trolleys, mass transit. Um, you know, all those interurban trains were meant to take you out to for a week for a weekend, uh, yeah. uh, you know, a picnic or something out of Concord, out to Walden. But also, Central Park was um, was built with the justification that. It would give New Yorkers exposure to the outside. You know, those, those big dramatic kind of boulders and rock cliffs yeah. you see in Central Park, it really is kind of an effort to bring some, uh, uh, what, dramatic romantic landscape into the city. It's not supposed to just look like the countryside. It's supposed to look like a, an illustration of the countryside. Yeah, and even now in a city of nine plus million people, when you go into Central Park, you can find yourself in a kind of... What feels like, I mean, except for all those freaking fences that they put up every time, you know, they want the grass is yeah, they want to protect some grass. But you can get out there and get lost and find yourself in a wooded copse. You know, it's it's that a, has a real fairy tale vibe. But it's social engineering. You know, yeah. it's an attempt to make life in a in a complex urban environment seem manageable and and it's a nineteenth century holodeck. Yeah, that's right. And then you can go back to your tenement to your factory job, yeah. and feel like, well, I got, you know, I got that fresh air. It's like, oh, there's coal burning furnaces all around you. The, the <laughs> air wasn't that fresh, but 
You know, just recently, some friends of mine and I were emailing one another about getting together for a breakfast date, and we use the word eggs as shorthand for breakfast. Are we going to get eggs? When is eggs? Uh, we're funny people. Anyway, within a day, Google was throwing up ads for eggs. Like, I didn't even, I wasn't even aware that that was a thing, ads for eggs. But they, you know, over in the sidebar, it was like, do you want eggs? Get some eggs. And this was, you know, a private email conversation. It scared the living daylights out of us. Now, I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't, don't we just use incognito mode? Well, incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can see every single website you've ever visited and then sell that information legally to ad companies. So whatever your local ISP is, ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers, so your ISP can't see the sites that you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. Most of the time, I don't even realize I have ExpressVPN on. So, protect your online activity today with the VPN rated number one by CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive Omnibus link at expressvpn.com omnibus. You can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's express, E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash omnibus to learn more. You know, and that romanticism, I think, after World War I, there entered in a lot of cynicism. And it was – and this this spread worldwide. I mean, the the we think of the Japanese, uh, like, their respect for traditional craftsmanship and, the, you know, their ancient crafts as being something that's b- been part of Japanese culture in a continuum – but it really is a part, a product of a revival in the 1920s. Oh, interesting. Called the Minge, where there was within young Japanese artists and thinkers, uh, suddenly the old crafts are getting lost. Yeah, yeah, all these old guys that are making soy sauce with a paddle. All of a sudden, there were these young guys in high collars and and tight neckties going, you know, this is amazing. Like we need to, we need to give you a gold medal and and I'm willing to pay extra for this, mm-hmm. you know, and that's what it really comes down to a lot of the time. I mean, anything scarce will become a luxury good. Right. Arts and crafts uh, sort of uh, evolved through Art Nouveau, which became, still had the trappings of a philosophy, but became much more just it's a just decorative, decorative art. Nature has pretty shapes. Yeah. Let's use those. But then art, the reaction to Art Nouveau was deco and deco got real stainless steel and and you know deco and bauhaus keep the curves but make them kind of mathematical and industrial yeah and to turn the you know when when i think artists and theorists realized that there was no longer any fighting industrial production um to then make those processes aesthetic and to build the center pompadou where all the ducting is is, is painted, painted bright colors, and to you know to embrace industrialization and find beauty and meaning in it. And so, throughout the twentieth century, and then uh, then following upon 
deco was modernism. Modernism, again, uh, mid-century modernism did try and integrate the outside and the natural world with the forms, but the forms were all very rectilinear. And the inside-outside connection was done through plate glass windows and yeah, cement patios. I was about to say, if you can't afford an all-glass house in the, in the woods uh, upstate New York, then you're kind of out of luck. Well, and, and, and mid-century modern architecture was the architecture of the post-war boom generation, and they made a million of those little houses, all of which sort of tried to get that patio inside outside thing um a big green lawn but it was a very different idea of what uh, uh, interaction with nature was that you would have your own fenced off garden it's an extremely manicured nature right. it's it's very um it's very uniform mm-hmm. uh you want your yard to look like your neighbors not to have any particular drama or romance to it right uh, uh yeah and and you feel like um there are just fewer surfaces to dust <laughs> I mean, one of the appeals of mid-century modernism was all those Art Nouveau lamps just took all day to clean. <laughs> and, you know, with this, you could just have a robot. But throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there were many movements of a kind of return to nature. There was, uh, in the uh, the late 60s and throughout the 70s, this sort of this sense of returning to a commune, uh, a back-to-nature movement where people were going out to farms and trying to create collective um, sort of economies where barter economies and lots of animal husbandry, that was very popular in the 1970s, also connected to a kind of back to Jesus movement that at least in our contemporary times, it seemed like from a 1970s perspective, going back to a 19th century version of Protestantism <laughs> or an 18th century one felt like really going back. This time with acoustic guitars. <laughs> right. Take it all the way back. Uh, that uh, again fell out of fashion in the 1980s and kind of throughout the 1990s. It just wasn't what people were talking about in, in the West. It's a, it's a forward, that's a forward thinking time. It's sort of the beginning of the information economy. Yeah. And we're, we're again thinking, thinking in terms of science fiction, thinking in terms of, um, once personal computers arrive on the scene, it's very hard to say, no, 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 the future is is out here in um, in central Oregon and, where Wavy Gravy and I are making our, you know, our own cheese. And maybe even the primitiveness of those computers convinces you that, that more steps are coming. Yeah. Like maybe in some level, and I don't remember if I felt this at the time, just having an Apple II personal computer in your house makes you feel like, this is just the start of right. something. I'm not there yet. Yeah, this but is not my, the pinnacle of this. My but robot butler is coming. It's getting better now every six months. Well, what we've seen in the last really five or six years um, has been a pendulum swing in the other direction. And it started in the mid-2000 or early 2010s where there was, again, a recognition that Everything was garbage. And in particular, it, it was a reaction to the fact that the manufacture of most things had been wholesale exported to China. And everything that arrived on your shores, because American, the American economy and the, and the, and the, the way that consumerism had, had evolved to its maybe lowest common denominator was that 
the only thing anyone cared about anymore was price. Um, price was the determiner or the determinant, the determiner of value. If you couldn't get it for cheaper, you know, you always bought the cheaper thing. You bought the cheapest airplane ticket. You bought the cheapest polo shirt. Um, because it was a, a race to the bottom and, and in China you could, if you, if you rolled your slave labor dice the right way, you could make a polo shirt that you could sell for a dollar and that included shipping. And that was, and you know, what's interesting is I think in many cases, it doesn't matter how, how many of them are actually good, right. you know, like you can, you can deal with such a huge array of just garbage products because it costs eight cents to manufacture. Did I, I was reading a, a, a memoir by somebody who went to, I think it wasn't even China. I think they were actually in North Korea from, from some Canadian animation studio using, was I talking about this on Omnibus? Hmm. Using, using North Korean animation labor and they're terrible at it. Uh-huh. But it, and so this guy would end up, his, he hated his job because he had to reject 85% of their product. But it didn't matter because it didn't matter if only one in five drawing was usable because they were getting paid less than a fifth what a right. North American animator would be paid. It ended up penciling out. So it didn't. Yeah. So they except don't, it broke the soul of the of the people that had to that had to look at the bad work. Right. And uh, it's the same way. Who knows what it did to the souls of the people that were doing the bad work? Uh, that's probably even worse. But it became a kind of. Um, it was a watchword of a certain kind of what what what's what seemed like thriftiness and good sense at a certain point in the nineties to recognize yeah. that this polo shirt cost eighty dollars because it had a horsey on it, and this polo shirt cost twenty dollars because it was from the gap you're, yeah you're a better mom if you go to old navy that's right yeah and so that that race to the bottom where everything was suddenly on sale, everything. I mean, if you think about the largest stores in the country, they're all discount stores now. Mm-hmm. Um, Target and Marshalls and all these things, you know, they start as like, you don't have to pay full price. It really ties into our desire to want a new thing. You know, like if that's how you heal your soul in a consumerist economy is buying things, then you're going to need something. And it doesn't matter if the polo shirt lasts eight years or that's eight right. months that's because right. If it only lasts eight months, great. You get the fun of buying a new one next August. And that disposable culture produces a situation where you do get a new pair of shoes every month or every six months. How fun is that? Not because you wanted them, because you need them. And that idea that like, well, I need these shoes, so I get to go to the store and buy these flashy and ornate and vulgar And for someone like me who does not think shopping is fun, it really is, is frustration when the thing wears out and you then you're trying to find the same thing or the closest thing to it because you don't want the the hassle of trying to figure out what the new flashy thing is you you just wish your other thing hadn't fallen apart well what happened in the in the 2010s was a, you know a a movement kind of driven by the millennials to suddenly rediscover um what were described as heritage brands. And that was a, that was a component of not a, not a return to nature or back to nature movement so much as a simplification of our lives movement, a, a, a preference for bicycles, a, um, a preference for 
clothes that were made in America that would last, a pair of shoes that... That's, that's our idea of nature. Right. Is a, a pair of shoes that would last two, two to five years. <laughs> yeah. And that would, was kind of, uh, you know, mocked or derided as the artisanal movement. You know, it extended all the way across the spectrum. People started to want farm fresh eggs. They wanted to have chickens of their own. There were people going into beekeeping who lived in the city. You know, there were people who were returning to practicing crafts, blacksmiths and uh, glass blowers as a way of finding meaning in a contemporary world. And one that, that we were well past the point that even before this social media debacle of the last five years, well past the point where computers and mass production had uh, divorced us almost completely from a connection to uh, basic needs. I've kind of been teasing my son lately because all of his hobbies now are uh, between five and 800 years old. He's getting really into chess and he will play online, but he's getting into chess. Right. He and his friends were out, uh, they walk the railroad tracks trying to find old spikes that they can then smelt into things. They're, they're doing Hello. backyard blacksmithery. Whoa. Is that, is that the word? What's yeah, the noun sure. of bla- blacksmithery? blacksmithery? Uh, so, you know, whatever this return to nature is, it is like reached into high schools in 2020. Well, what happened, I think, to the to the millennial version of it was that it very quickly became a kind of connoisseur culture where if you want to buy a pair of shoes made in America that are going to last for 10 years, they cost $400. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was a lot of, again, philosophy, theory behind it that if you bought a pair of shoes every year for 10 years, it was going to cost you way more than $400. So- your $400 investment, although it seems crazy, is actually money well spent. But even that is a kind of privilege because you got to have the money up front. You got to have the money. And you have to be, and also the shoes that cost $400, you know, a lot of them are work boots mm-hmm. and work clothes that have been re- recaptured. You know, those companies like Shinola or Levi's or Filson or Pendleton. You know, they're, they've been making these products for a century and a half, but now they're being marketed in a very crafty way um, at, you know, as American-made. And a lot of times, you know, they're American-assembled from products <laughs> made in China or from components made in China. Uh, but, but that was a very expensive and connoisseur-based culture uh, that – that had that was easily mocked. There were a lot of people that were buying four hundred dollar axes to just hang in their living room. Uh, the idea that they would ever use that axe for anything, but it was a beautiful thing, a, 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 an item, a talisman to replace what would have been money spent on video game cartridges or or a nickel print. I guess now there's so much information out there, you can find out what the right thing is to own without actually having any first hand experience or expertise, right? And there are a, a thousand blogs that will tell you what the best um, handmade brass compass is mm-hmm. if you want to take your three-masted uh, frigate out to Brigadoon. <laughs> um, but that 
in the social media age, and I'm talking that that was a a movement. the 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 artisanal crafts movement was don't, don't say artisanal was one um, that was kind of popular as the millennium generation matured. Right? They they were now um, first becoming prosperous. They had disposable income. Maybe weren't able to afford their own home, but they could certainly buy an $800 axe. It was an expression of having arrived for a generation newly in their 30s. But the hangover from it was that as social media and as the American political scene sort of descended into chaos, um, there was a a kind of a, a... what would you say almost a fascistic quality to it because it, the idea of it being made in America is nationalistic and the idea of a lot of this stuff being, um, uh, back to the land is now connected to a kind of post-apocalyptic expectation. Oh, interesting. Right? Like I'm going to have this ax for when, For for prepper reasons? Yeah, I have it now in my apartment and I won't need it, but I will need it when the race war happens. And so that, those associations and the combination of this sort of initially an everyday uh, carry culture is one that is almost kind of Walden-esque. It's very easy to watch it. It's the dark side of Walden. Turn dark, right. But now... Generation Z, who? What are we calling them? The the Zeds, Zoomers, the, the Zoomers. People do say Zoomers, which um, is kind of funny. It's like they're what they're faster baby boomers. Yeah, the Zoomers are now coming of age, and we're you're watching it happen in your own house. Mm-hmm. But we're we're seeing Zoomers who have been raised entirely in a social media environment, and I first noticed it with the with the arrival of Snapchat, which shocked me and offended me that the premise of Snapchat was that there was no archive. Yeah. Uh, and this was true of the the early days of 4chan. The idea that you would put any effort into a thing and have no uh, record of it. For those of us that had, that grew up with photo albums and, um, you know, and your journals, the, uh, the idea that you would put, you would take pictures and have them disappear. Yeah, it's the, it's the ultimate, uh, negation of any kind of artisanal yeah. uh, craftsmanship because you end with nothing. And for us as as Generation X, it was it it was astonishing to me to go on Snapchat and realize, oh, the point of this is not that you are making anything. Yeah. This is just a place to be. They don't have anywhere to be, and they can just be here. And there's nothing to haunt them. There's nobody's. You know, you can't, you can't take this and put it in their face later. And as the Zoomers kind of, the Zoomers don't, they're very young still, you know, they don't have the money to buy an $800 ax, but they want a more meaningful life, a life that isn't just transacted on Instagram, that isn't entirely, um, put out into the panopticon of, uh, of a life online. Yeah, I feel like there is where they're as aware, if not more, than we are of the limitations of the the screen based life. 
that doesn't they don't seem able to escape from it but they don't like it well and i guess the escape can be virtual is that what you're gonna say no the escape now so in in very recent years only the last couple of years there um there was a kind of noticeable uptick in and on social media and instagram and other places a um a sort of world like my daughter's where all of a sudden gingham dresses and uh, Instagram posts of, of young people outdoors interacting with nature, but also in a kind of pre-industrial social way, uh, barn dances and kind of um, like real retro and are these real life occurrences happening or I, I thought a lot of this was kind of mediated through fan art and carefully chosen still photos it was before the pandemic some of this was actually happening it, it it's it it was happening but of course the this generation is like like a, a lot of generations that that kind of develop a uh, a back to nature mentality they're just one generation away from anyone that knows actually anything about square dancing firsthand, right? Or anything about, I mean, these are, they're rediscovering old, not just technologies, but old moral technologies, um, which is to say that to put your hands on a thing, to touch wood, if you will, mm-hmm. is, um, is life affirming. And, and also it, the, the, the contradiction in terms is that the only way we know about this is that it's, that it's happening on social media, um, which is the opposite of this unmediated experience. So what are the hallmarks of this aesthetic, this, this like, new cottagecore? So cottagecore is just what it sounds like. And the aesthetic isn't particularly, it does, the aesthetic doesn't have any elements that you would look at and say, I've never seen it before. You know, the, the aesthetic is, just it's the your, opposite, right? It's purposeful yeah. nostalgia. It's just your chickens and your and your and your pinafores and your. Um, so it's a kind of an unspecific rural life, right? Without too many details about who's farming and why. But it's if the, if stuff's old timey, if people are putting away watermelon rind preserves and feeding the chickens, that's good. It's a well, it's attempt an attempt to find meaning, but what differentiates it is that it's become a LGBTQ uh, safe place that yes cottagecore is largely a lesbian aesthetic not largely but it has been uh, but like it has become a component of a kind of lesbian driven movement but also people throughout the queer spectrum because the one thing that little house on the prairie and pioneer town and Colonial Williamsburg and all these um, these past movements to a pastoral existence. The one thing none of them had was a safe place. A queer visibility. For queers. Yeah. And so, or for queer culture yeah. of any kind. I mean, the, the traditionalism of them. And because you still see, I mean, you see in Southern Utah, people in these same gingham dresses and bonnets who are trying to, or or in you know, Western Pennsylvania who are still trying to live according to the, that premise, that connection to the land without any 
20th century mediation. Um, but that return, but from a Zoomer perspective, as a way of saying, um, these were things that we've never in literature or in, in any consumption of, of, of media throughout our lives yeah. have ever been able to place ourselves within. It's essentially, it's, it's an alternate history, right? Right. Like what if there were, you know, little flannel wearing lesbian kids running around little house in the big woods. Yeah. We're going back to the 18th century because, and, and you can see it because, uh, post queer liberation, there's, I mean, all those aesthetics that were part of the liberation movements are all modern. They're all postmodern. Um, it's a post, a lot of the philosophy underpinning those movements are postmodern philosophies. Certainly the, the, the visual aesthetic is often forward looking. Very forward. It's, it's, you know, and, and even the rainbow flag, even the, even piercings, tattoos. I mean, these are all, uh, like ways of signaling, but ways of signaling that, 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 that aesthetic doesn't appeal to everyone. We're, we're, yeah. A lot of those say, you know, we're more advanced. This is the next thing. Right. We're, we're the cutting edge of, you know, straight fashion is going to land here in 10 years. We're there already. But to say, and this uh, is the opposite. you know, I'm queer, but what I want is a simple life and to be in touch with, uh, nature and, and good food and, um, and a connection to making things and, 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 uh, uh, like a connection to that, the affection that one might have for just the process of. Maybe this is just because existence. I see it filtered through social medias, but like the, the symptoms I see of a lot of this are people, I don't see a lot of the yearning for the actual life as much as I do people enjoying the quaint visuals. And what we'll see, I think, because we're in the very earliest days and the quarantine has uh, really accentuated this. And I've read some, some kind of, theorization that because the quarantine in its initial days said very explicitly, like, don't go outside mm -hmm. that this, this conspicuous outside, uh, iconography, you know, to be out in a field and to be dancing under the moonlight, um, that this was really just another sort of act of youthful rebellion. It's just, and, and it's been true many, many times throughout the last, two or three centuries that a return to nature is a act of rebellion against the, against the dominant. Sure. They can't, they can't, class. they can't get you in the forest. That's the whole Bruno Bettelheim thing about the woods. Like the, the social strictures can't touch you there. And what we don't know yet is how much of uh, the proliferation of this ideology throughout social media will result in what we've been hoping for on the omnibus the whole time, a wholesale rejection of social media. Uh, we <laughs> will, and then we'll never know. <laughs> yeah. If social media goes away, how will people get their cottage core pictures to it? So I guess they'll just invite each other to their cottages. You and I are sitting here on Instagram waiting to learn more about cottage core. I want to see a picture of a loom. Where did they all go? And, and they're out there potentially, right? The, the, this they're is, out there weaving. It's the natural extension of it that what we'll learn is that, um, that, some large number of Zoomers have um, have departed for Vashon Island. We'll find out later when they make us a sampler about it. And that concludes Cottage Core, entry 283.zp0206, certificate number 45989 in the Omnibus. 
Now, those of us who are left behind, we're kind of the, uh, when the rapture happens and all the cottagecore people go into the woods, uh, John and I will probably still be left on social media as at John Roderick, at Ken Jennings, at Omnibus Project. Uh, as always, feel free to follow us there. If you have something you want to say, you can do so at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to send us your physical uh, items, your your quilts and your foraged mushrooms and uh, your uh, you know the recordings of your mandolin music, um, please send us all your best cottagecore products to Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. This is like the perfect stuff for a cottagecore show. Did you see what... Um, it was Rick who sent us the, the Indiana skiing poster. Yes. Now he's also, uh, I think his, his day job appears to be in beekeeping because he sent us some honey. Oh, my goodness. Look at those. T- and they're two very different honeys, a dark and a light. Well, here's why. One's from the 2017 collection. One's from 2020. Oh, these uh, these bees were yeah, were sucking on different flowers. Yeah, what was happening in, in 2017? It was uh, early Trump era. The bees are all depressed. A much darker, darker and more amber honey. Or does it, you think it just ages? Do you think 2020s will look like this in three years? I don't think so. I don't know. Every hive counts. Uh, he tells us and sent us some stickers. That, so you and I have to decide which of us wants the new honey and which of us wants... Uh, Ooh, the new honey. <laughs> which of us wants... Uh, <laughs> wants call, the old honey? Call me maybe era 2017 honey. <laughs> um, I will take either honey because I uh, because I believe in this honey. You believe, believe in this honey? I believe in it. I believe either honey is going to be great. I've said I have an herb garden, and you've said you don't like herbs, but I think about this all the time because the bees love whatever's in blossom. Yeah. And we currently have a lot of bees buzzing our oregano, and I'm just thinking about the awful honey they're going to make that, oh, that tastes like oregano. Oregano honey. I know, right? Yeah. Mm. So I apologize to any beekeepers in our area who are going to get uh, uh, Domino's pizza tasting honey thanks to us. Thank you, Rick, for sending us that. We also got a postcard from Kathy from uh, from Donner Summit. Oh, well. Look at that. Well, well. Donner Summit Bridge, overlooking Donner Lake. Beautiful. Look at that. That's wonderful. That makes me want to eat my friend's wife. <laughs> well, you don't have to go to the Continental Divide for that, John. This is, this is modern Seattle. That's true. I could eat my friend's wife any time. Uh, no, the Tenth Commandment says, please do not. Uh, I just want to watch Jerry Falwell Jr. eat his friend's wife. Right. Roof. Uh, uh, Jerry, Falwell's, Jerry Falwell Jr. watch me eat his friend's wife. That's what he'd be more into. Yeah. Um, b- 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 the, b- you can uh, find fellow Futurelings online. You can all share your, your Cottagecore interests uh, at the Futurelings Facebook group or subreddit or Discord. Uh, if... You are one of the, uh, you know, if, if your cottage core aesthetic is being funded by your status as a some kind of a economic elite with uh, disposable income to burn, mm-hmm. um, show your support for some of the last remaining craftspeople, podcasters, hewing uh, a beautiful tapestry, weaving, I guess you don't hew a tapestry, weaving a beautiful tapestry mm. from the... Hew it. From the thinnest of threads, Hugh Hewitt? No. From the thinnest of threads, Jennifer Love Hewitt? Mm. Uh, as we do weekly on Omnibus, twice a week on Omnibus, you can make a financial contribution and become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash omnibusproject. And we thank you if you do. 
Futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We wouldn't even know if it if it stopped surviving because we'd be watching Instagram and and uh, we'd be in the dark. Only you will know. We'd yeah. literally be in the dark. Uh, you, futurelings, will know because your historical record presumably will be able to... You know exactly how many weeks we have left, and That's you're right. laughing it up. You may feel like, oh, it already started, and you dummies don't even know. You guys are going to be foraging mushrooms before you know it, and not by choice. Uh, we hope and pray that that catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.